0: Welcome to Inspiration and Adaptation, Benell Street Art Center's weekly dialogue to illuminate current issues, empower audiences across Alaska and beyond with creative strategies for maneuvering challenging times. Today is the fourth in a five-week series of conversations on Indigenous land acknowledgement. I'm Asia Freeman, artistic director of Benell Street Art Center, and a lifelong visitor on this land called Tuget by the Denina, meaning shore or at the water. Tuget is the name for the place settlers called Bishop's Beach after George Bishop, who starting in the mid 1900s, operated the Inlet Trading Post, now home to Bunnell Street Art Center. The process of erasing and overwriting indigenous place names is a strategy of colonization and white supremacy. Today, as we acknowledge the opportunity to live in this place, And we honor the Indigenous people who have stewarded this land since time immemorial. We lift up names and we discuss how we can permanently acknowledge Dena'ina and Sufiak names with local artist Joel Isaac and arts and land and stewardship advocate, Ruth Miller. Joel Isaac's family is from the village of chag And I'm going to ask you to correct me on my pronunciation, Joel also today known as Point Possession. He currently lives in Soldatna. His Dena'ina name, I'm going to ask you to pronounce, translates to salmon skin, which relates to his pursuits of learning fish skin sewing. He uses multicultural communication as a medium to aid in language revitalization. Joel is an artist, an educator, and a lifelong learner. He's a previous member of Bunnell's board and advisory council. Thanks so much for joining us today, Joel.
1: And for having me on Asia and everyone who's joining us. Do um, you want me to say the names or introduce myself?
0: I'm going to ask, um, uh, actually I'd like to introduce Ruth next and then I'd like to move into that wonderful and important um, part about pronunciation. Ruth Biller is a Dena'ina woman born and raised in Anchorage. Her Alaskan family is from the Lake Clark region, which ties with ties in Bristol Bay, and she is the climate justice organizer for a native movement. She participates in many dialogues nationally and internationally on climate justice, indigenous rights, and tearing down racial capitalism. She's particularly passionate about her work on radical compassion. Welcome, Ruth.
2: Chicken, Nick thank you so much for that introduction. Joel?
0: Yes, Joel, we'd love for you to just start by pronouncing the true names and the first name of Point Possession and your own name and telling us a bit about how lifting up Indigenous names connects to language and cultural revitalization. Sounds
1: good. Dukidli um, Takashnish, Fedora Calendar Pennington Shachida'a, Chagal Chagashnikt, Point Possession Gashchana, Sharon Isaac Shunkta, David Isaac Shtukta, Lek'ayis uh, Dene'ina uh, Sh'i'ji, Joel Isaac Gashchana Sh'i'ji, Saldatna Shigu, Shakaya K'ilanda. I ask permission and acknowledge everyone um, who's here and the permission to speak. And uh, my grandmother is from Chagal'nikt, which is the Dene'ina, one of the Dene'ina words uh, or names for a uh, point possession. And my parents are Sharon and David Isaac, and we live in uh, Soldatna. And my Deni'ina name is Hl'kayis, which means salmon skin, and my English name is Joel Isaac. Um, and then the other one is uh, pronouncing to- 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 um, which is the name for uh, where Vanell is right by it, that little inlet of water that comes like slough or um, body of water that comes by there on the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. thank you for having me today.
0: Thank you so much. Ruth, um, will you tell us your are denying a name, its pronunciation
2: and meaning? Uh uh-huh. Yes, we do. Ruth Miller Gustanish Ejit, or Shebaik Isan Ejit, and Inakanagash Kanash, Chiriangas Nenish It, a Dege Heather uh, Kendall Miller Miller thank you everyone for joining this space with us it's an honor to, to be in this zoom circle with you today um, my English name is Ruth Miller um, my Denana name is uh which was given to me uh, by one of my mentors and aunties Danita Slosson of Taonic uh, and that name means whirlwind woman. Um, I was born and raised here in Degaykak, otherwise known as Anchorage, uh, but my family is from the Lake Clark region, a little bit farther west from here, between here and Bristol Bay, and then we uh, moved downriver into the bay um, and and grew our relationships and our roots there uh, before coming in, inland here. Um, as uh, mentioned, I am presently a climate justice organizer with a Native Movement, which is a matriarchal indigenous led grassroots organizing crew uh, based here in Alaska. Um, and I just uh, wanted to presence that because um, our work in climate justice, um, as you know, I'm sure this conversation will expand on is inextricably linked, not just to environmental rights or as we call the rights of the land and the rights of Mother Earth, but um, the defense of the essence of our people. Um, And so when we speak of acknowledging land, when we speak of monuments and and how we symbolize and communicate our attachment to land, that is deeply tied to climate justice and environmental work. That is climate justice and environmental work because our our human rights, our rights as Indigenous people and communities are are one and the same.
1: Mm.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that and Ruth could you tell us a little bit more about the work that you do at the intersection of climate justice defending the sacred and um yeah just just tell us a little bit more about what that looks like how you and Joel connect
2: sure there are um lots of ways to speak about um the way and the why of our advocacy for our own people and what um the defense of our sacred relationship with our lands looks like. Um, some people might call that work climate justice um, and indigenous rights advocacy. Other people might call that work defending our relatives, our relatives, our people relatives, our relatives, our land and plant uh, relatives. Um, and so, when I uh, enter my work as a climate justice advocate, um, I uh, Enter lots of statewide dialect dialogues on what advocacy and policy looks like across the state and across the nation. Um, but to me, my climate justice work is also the defense of our missing and murdered Indigenous women. It's the defense and well-being of our people uh, culturally, linguistically, spiritually. Um, you know, as I as I begin presencing. Um, we are so intrinsically tied to the health and wealth of our of our lands and waters and airs that defending the sacred means not just defending um, this natural world that we've been gifted, but it also extends to defending one another, defending the sacredness of our women and two-spirit siblings. Um, and so to me, all of this work is tied into climate justice work. Um, you know, a degree of it, yes, is is protesting against Pebble Mine and Donlin Mine and opening of ANWR, um, but climate justice work just as equally is making sure that our elders are well cared for, making sure that our women are safe and have resources and have community. Um, it's making sure that our children can grow up hearing their native languages around them. Um, and so I, 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 all of that work is is this hard work that mm-hmm. uh, that we're all in together.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Joel, you're a kind of ambassador between worlds, too, between art and healing, between the Western education model and traditional Alaska Native life ways. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing today.
1: So I do a lot of language work right now. And one of the pieces of that is language is intrinsically tied to place and land. And it's one of the things when I'm, when I'm teaching the Dena'ina college class at KPC, we talk about dialect and like, why did, do, why does this area have this word and this one have this one? And some of it, if you go to these places and you listen to the animals, like seagulls sound different to me across the inlet over in the Stony river area compared to here in Kenai on the beach. And it's like the difference between buh versus va, it's a BV difference. And they're very close. They still very much sound like, oh, that's a seagull. But you can, you start to kind of, you hear the the, harm, the harmony, there's frequency, there's resonance that's in sound. And humans, we we feel that. You feel sound waves hitting you. Um, And that kind of awareness to sound is manifested in human language, is one of the ways of talking about like, where does language come from? We, we have a one of our uh, early on in the semester conversations is about that. And one of the tools that we use um, in, the, in the class to help show students what their sound, like what words they're saying sounds like is a program called PROCT. And it creates a spectrogram, which is a two dimensional rendering of three dimension. So it takes the frequency, the volume and um, time, and it graphs it. And you get um, dots, white dots, and then if it's darker black behind it, there's, um, it's like void space. And it looks really, really like a night sky. And you can see like if you go, it blows out the whole thing in a, like a white speckled, looks like the Milky Way star belt going through like a black universe. And so I've been looking at these and, and practicing with them, and that's one of the um, pieces of language work that's inspired a show that I did uh, at KPC a couple years ago called Origins, where I took the spectrogram of the word bajuk, which is the word for caribou, and carved it into caribou fur. And so it's that representation of this is that that play between a visualization of sound a visualization of this is a caribou skin and marrying those two together and then um having the 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 spectrogram by that with the dinaina word Mm. and it's the idea that the title of the show is origins and it's the idea of where where does language come from where do we come from and that relationship that connection to the earth is in there and it's that harmony with what we're living and how much time you spend out in the land and if you're living out in the land you have to be moving and denied is a verb based language all of our almost all of our nouns are verbs that have been turned into nouns so they have a verb root so it's just it's a whole different way of thinking about the world and it's reflected in the language
0: mm. thank you Joel, you said that Art has served as a safeguard for you and a medium for generating understanding and communicating hard truths to a wide range of audiences to help facilitate wellness. Today, we're also talking about indigenizing monuments and what might indigenous monuments look like. Tell us about your project at the Kenaizi Health Clinic in Old Town Kenai near the mouth of the Kenai River. I'd love for you to describe the installation and how it manifests some of the ideas that you're speaking of. And if you would like to share any images with us on screen share, that would be great too.
1: I'm going to, I'm going to share a video. If that's all right. It doesn't have sound. Mm -hmm. Um, and is that playing? Can you guys see it? Okay, great. So this is a show called, um, lay your burdens down and, um, the, the idea or the inspiration for it for me came when I was an undergrad at UAF and uh, I'd heard for the first time I'd heard the statistic that three out of four women will be um physically or sexually assaulted by the age of 19 and that was I'd never heard that before when I was in high school and I was like wow that's that's a lot of the people I know um I that's just insane and um it really hit home with how true that was for the for people around me, for the for the women around me. And I was really struggling with the going through the experiences of um, my own trauma that I've experienced, but also there's a piece of being helpless when you're watching the the women around you go through this horrific thing. And the idea of wanting to destroy the person who's the male, the men who are doing this and what that was doing to me. Like I was so angry at all the men who were, who were doing these horrific actions and I needed to figure out a way to let go. Cause it's faceless. There's no way of like, let's sit down and address this. It's unknown, unknown men who are doing these things. Sometimes it is in, in the, the, the case that I was experiencing, it was like, I have no idea. And um, it's not something, it's a a very hard topic to talk about. Um, And so this was a a show where um, I wanted to create a space where I could do some healing, but also um, not hit people over the head with like a baseball bat of like, let's talk about sexual assault. That's, that's, people have to be ready to have that conversation if they want to go there. And there's also other trauma that people might want to, to go through um, talking about. And so from an art standpoint, this is an image of the, um, the salmon skin figure that I, that I made. And it, the idea of it, it's 76 salmon skins that are hand sewn into a um, life-size person and the skins have a very skin flesh-like quality to them and they kind of, you can deflate fish skin where you get it wet and then it hardens as it dries and it kind of shrivels. And it was the, this piece was the kind of the inception of what I wanted to do with the show um, where I wanted to visualize what I was feeling on the inside. But I also wanted to let it go because that's like, otherwise it will just consume you. And uh, in the video, you could see uh, there's a bowl right here that has stones in it, those ceramic stones that are stained with iron oxide. So they're very rusty looking. And um, there's a comment book here that people were able to to leave a note if they wanted to communicate that way, they could read other people's comments. Um, So it had that kind of that engagement of the collective going through it. So you start out here and you walk, it's about 125 feet into the center. And these are stretched moose hides um, that, are, that are the walls. And just the idea, like the holes that are created in the community, normally walls protect us and there's all these gaps and they're, they're still beautiful. Um, and just going through that space and you can see the, the fish can figure that's it's right in front of me here where it's positioned along the journey into the center. And um, in the center, there's another bowl that's in the middle and it's filled with water. And when you place the stone into the water, it um, makes the red color shift from being very irony to much more bright and vivid. And it's the idea of letting go. And you have the chance to work through these things on the inside, you let go of them, they go into the water, and then you walk back out. And so that, and you've, you've let go of that burden. That was the idea for me about how to express the process of me working through a way, a, a traumatic experience where I had no control. And it's not a single experience that's happened. So it's like you can I have to do this on a regular basis. So there's a little bit of ritual that happens and wanting it to not just be all about me, but to be able to provide a space for people who might want to engage in something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the idea between how I tried to approach that.
0: Thank you. I want to give Ruth a chance to respond to your image and to build off of that, a vision, Ruth, if you will, for how indigenous monuments and visible land acknowledgements can build power or create wellness
2: for indigenous communities. Chikinik Kalejo for sharing that. that, um, I wish I could have uh, seen that exhibition in person that is deeply moving to me and I'm, I'm really grateful uh, for you as a brother as, and as an ally and as a relative um, to be entering these conversations with us. Um, and I think what stood out to me in particular about this piece is um, the process of going within, um, especially for our men who um, so many of whom are also in such deep need of healing and are often excluded from, uh, the narrative of unwellness, um, in ways that, you know, just contribute to more violence and more disenfranchisement. Um, and so the process of going within, um, and doing that washing work, that cleansing work, um, especially as, as you're moving in a spiral, I think is extremely powerful to me. And that really resonates with, um, that, that imagery speaks to me about acknowledging our lands um, and what land acknowledgements can be and must be. Um, because when we enter this conversation, we first have to understand that a land acknowledgement is not a phrase uh, speaking the, in the traditional stewards of land. That is not a land acknowledgement. That is the first step of what an everlasting process of building relationship with land and with people must look like. So, a land acknowledgement, yes, should begin with um, honoring the um, cultures that grew from the land over millennia. Honoring the people who, within their bones and their spirits, carry thousands of years of knowledge um, in relationship. An aspect of land acknowledgement is honoring that um, and showing the humility to ask permission to begin growing your own relationship with lands. But beyond uh, the statement that often comes to mind when, when most of us talk about land acknowledgment. Um, we also have to hold that acknowledgment to be an active uh, participatory process uh, that is renewed, that is tended to, that's nurtured, like any relationship. Um, so acknowledging the land, thinking about what indigenous monuments can and should be um, is a conversation that that you know, we'll, we'll never be complete and we'll never have an endpoint. point. Um, it's, uh, it, it's agreeing to continuously engage with place, to learn more of place, to learn more of a history of place and then to begin writing your own history with that place. Um, and what happens when we begin to uh, reframe that work is we do that, we, we perform that process of spiraling inward um, and carrying the land and the natural world with us into ourselves because uh, once that relationship uh, is tended to we can see that the wealth and wellness of our lands is the wealth and wellness of the traditional stewards of those lands which is the health and wellness of our um, present visitors in our, our communities today um, and that through uh, this ecosystem that begins to bring in other aspects of the conversation, uh, we find what real liberation um, and well-being can look like. Um, and so, as we think of you know, as as we begin to dive into our conversation about indigenous monuments, um, you know, to me, when I think of indigenous monuments, I think of a healthy and flourishing forest. I don't particularly think of um, a sculpture. I think of an indigenous monument is going up into the Alpine Tundra, the mountains of my home and feeling the wind. That's an indigenous monument. Um, And if we begin to award that sacredness to our lands, into our ecosystems and the spaces around us that we afford to a museum exhibition, you know what kind of beautiful change would we see in our relationship to our homelands here? Um, and so I'm, you know, and I'm certainly excited to to be in conversation with you all about, um, you know, what what those spaces of acknowledgement can look like. But I really wanna. Yeah, bring us back to those moments of going within and doing that cleansing work um, and how these conversations um, have to engage all peoples. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you, Ruth. And as you're speaking, I'm reminded that we have folks who have joined us and who may have questions themselves that they'd like to put forward. And so I want to invite each of you who are listening, um, you know, to share your questions in the chat or to um, unmute your microphones and, and speak up because we're so pleased. That you can enjoy, you can join us and, and help expand this conversation. Um, Joel, what's what's your thought um, response to um, Ruth's, um, you know, um, sharing that an indigenous monument is um, in the land itself, and how do you feel like art, physical installations in the land, can um, add to and reinforce that? that
1: opportunity yeah i wholeheartedly agree um it's like if we were to go and bulldoze the pyramids and and put up a shopping center um how would the world feel if we were to go bulldoze the duomo Mm -hmm. and put up a shopping center what might that feel like for the, the world and i think we saw a little bit of that when in paris when the roof caught fire. Mm-hmm. And that that's I'm like not at all minimizing that. But it's like, so that happens like every day for indigenous people. Like that's a daily feeling of like, oh my goodness, this is this horrific thing. I'm just like there are people that came up to me at when when the when that that morning after the, the church caught fire and they were just like in shock. And I'm like, yeah, that was like yesterday. That's that's happening regularly. Um it's a very hot button issue, but I'm just going to say it this way with the amount of influx of people that come um, to the peninsula to, to be Alaska's playground, who don't pick up their garbage. It's like if you were to go into a church and leave all your junk, what would that be like? Like you can't even take pictures with a flashbulb. Do you really think you could bring in your snacks and just leave all the wrappers and walk out? Mm. And like, oh, I need a rock. I'm going to go chisel out some marble off off of David. Like, that's that's not quite how that works. So, I, and that that's like if using a similar language and vocabulary about the visual arts and how monuments in in a Western fine arts, um, and if you apply that to the similar thing. That, that's happening with indigenous monuments, um, which is place um, and life, then I think it it starts to get wheels turning a little bit. Um, I think it's also a dangerous way to go into that kind of conversation because it's like a us versus them or it's a we're more damaged than you are kind of way. And so just being noting that caveat, like it's don't spend too much time down that, but it's oftentimes for people who've never considered a living monument as a monument, you have to kind of crack like, oh, that's what this is. And then it provides a space for having a more healthy conversation. And it's one of the things for me when I think about the bronze statuary, um, i very specific about when, or very thoughtful about when I will apply for to put together a proposal in response to an RFP for monuments because bronze is a very toxic process to work with for me as an individual, for the other people around me, for the earth. Like it's, it's not a nice nice thing for anyone who's in the process of working with. It's a heavy metal that has to be mined. And so if, if I'm going to choose to go through all those steps and have that draw of resources, it's a sacrifice to those who are working on it and that includes the planet so that's been one of those things that i've shifted with from when i first started working in casting to where i am at with it now the more that i've learned about the process the more that i've started to kind of shift away from just automatically going to doing it um, there's a, the statues that i've agreed to produce um, and put together proposals for have worked to bring visibility into spaces where people are indigenous people have been invisible. And, um, that's been part of that, like, okay, this is the right thing to do. And so I've I've made, made that choice that yes, in this case it is. Um, so there's, there's still, it's always one of those things that I have a hard time with with casting. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why I like fish skin so much and working with natural materials. Is that they don't have that associated cost?
0: so you're saying something about how inherently within the monument um, building process, there is a kind of um, concession to a sort of western way of building, extracting and you know and erecting things in the land to draw attention to indigenous presence and story that has some compromises?:
1: Yeah and it's part of it is it's the the medium itself and the history of that practice so the idea behind the bronze statuary is it needs to last for forever like we're still digging up greek bronze statuary and that's that's what got me in like when i was in like third grade i saw bronze statues and i was like this is cool i want to learn how to make these and then when i was 20 i learned how to make them um but it's like that's a thousands of years old and it's still here it's that idea of trying to, to chase immortality and the idea that even though me as an individual is gone, I have left my footprint here. And the similar concept, if you will, could be done through a different expression. So in a design of way, you leave no footprint behind. And that is evidence that life is still happening. So they're they're similar concepts, if you will, thinking about that long-term lasting quality, but it's just a very different way of one is about creating space for regenerative, continual life. And one is about making sure that this is locked, frozen moment in time that can never change. Mm -hmm. Which ironically, then the Romans came and took all the statues down and melted them and turned them into bronze and then made the marbles. But it just shows like, you can't actually stop time.
0: I'm thinking about some things that you've said. I remember your statement into colonizing Alaska when you said as a contemporary indigenous man, and excuse me if I paraphrase incorrectly, I have at my fingertips contemporary technology and customary and traditional technology, global technologies, and, um, you know, enduring um, historic technologies. And so to being alive today and being vibrant means using all of those things and flowing between them as i need to and within the bronze work it seems like there's resistance to that kind of um risk of invisibility or erasure that can be a part of that light footprint on the land which um you know could be said to you know um describe the uh, indigenous life weights and there's a resistance than to um, that invisibility through the the bronze the bronze statuary perhaps. I was wondering if you could show us some pictures of some some work um, for example at the Denina Wellness Center outdoors the the, the folks um, processing fish. Thank you. Tell us a little bit more about these works what the process was like um, to uh, with with your community to, to erect them and, and some of the symbolism.
1: So this is a uh, six foot two Denaena fisherman. And part of the process for going through making these statues is I spent two years worth of research on going to museums. i um, looking at historical clothing, kind of at contact, um, which is as close to pre-contact record that you can kind of get physical objects. Um, drawings and then I learned how to tan uh, moose and caribou I learned how to weave porcupine quills um, learned how to do the sewing and all the the steps to be able to accurately portray the materials in bronze to where they don't just feel like they are cold but they're lifelike and that the people are in action of living like we're still here doing these things and uh, the shorts that he's wearing are one of those pieces that is piece it's if you take the physical objects that are remaining and you take the ric- written record this is what you'd have to do in order to tie them together but it's kind of like who would be collecting underwear in 1850 and yes Cairo's museum has king tut's underwear so there's that but it's also that he pre- like king tut was preserved in a tomb with it so we like we burned everything in denied a culture and that whole that. So it's very different things. Like, yes, this was done. It exists where people, humans have collected that, but it's like, it's just not going to happen. Um, so that was one of those things that was recreated. And like, this is basically what I wear when I'm dip netting. Um, I wear a wetsuit jacket because for the most part, um, because of the, I need it to protect me from uh, other people hitting me with poles and, um, also it's just a safety thing in case like I float with it on, but I just wear shorts and I'm like in the water. Um, and it's like, I get a question about this, like, Oh my goodness, one TB too cold. And it's like, it, it's no, um, it's people can handle it. I, I can handle it. Uh, and then the idea too, is that this is a family that's putting out fish. And so, um, there's the, the mother and the daughter and the father working together, um, as part of, the process of of putting up fish and uh the the mother being in action of doing something and the daughter being in action and that these people are physically fit enough to live this way and that's those were some of the pieces that went into it um And representing the technologies that we use. That's like, he's holding a 12 foot fishing spear. And these A-frame fish racks are a technology piece that's also used to put in the water to create fish fences for using the fishing spear. And like the other piece too is like, we're still doing this, like it's July, and I will say uh, chicken neck to Asia for working with me on this is like, it's it's like fishing until 2 a.m. and trying to put up fish still. It's like, this is still what we do. Um, I think the other piece that's significant about where Old Town is and um, visualizing women and children in bronze statuary, which doesn't happen a whole lot as far as the, the human record goes in a non-sexualized way. Um, is that this is the site in Old Town where Russian Fort Kenai was. And they um, erected little huts and would capture Denaina women and put them in there and use them until they died. And there was a 10 years of battling between Denaina and the Russian post. And then finally, we came and burned the whole post down and killed everyone except for two people as kind of a go tell them not to do this kind of idea. Um, And it's like, Russia didn't come very far inland in any of the areas in the state, but this is like in Kenai. This is part of that history of like we stopped the Russians from coming in, and this was a big problem. And it it took it was a, an ongoing battle of this. You can't treat our women and our children this way. And so if we look back and like what is that colonial record in this place, it's like well this is a very long standing tradition in Western colonial expansion in Alaska. And we still feel the after effects today. And so that's part of the the work of bringing that to light, but also showing positive representation of a whole family, men, women, children, and ev- so that everyone can see themselves reflected in it. The faces of, for these statues, I took um, pictures of my extended fam- Danina family, and combined them so that it didn't just look like oh that's me or that's my grandpa I wanted people nine of people to be able to walk up and like oh look I have a nose like that or like my chin's kind of like that or like I have cheeks like that you may not look exactly like that person but you see yourself reflected in that person and there's no skin color and so it's really a, it's about like like oh I do that action I I look kind of like that I have hair like that I have so it's, it's that idea of it's not a carbon copy of one person and a snapshot as frozen time, but a spanning about 70 years worth of generations. Um, and then the actions that we do as denied as, as people.
0: Mm-hmm. Ruth, when you see um, examples of Joel's uh, bronze statuary and then you consider um, the Captain Cook monument in Anchorage, um, another very well-known bronze statue, what are, what's the contrast between your feelings as a denied person um, in the presence of these two works?
2: Well, as our you know conversation alluded to previously, you know statues and and monuments what they are are uh, symbols. They're conversations. They're dialogue. Um, yes, there's the physical aspect of a bronze object, um, but What they are meant to do, of course, is communicate. And what is so remarkable and beautiful about Joel's work is that they're extremely inclusive um, pieces. They call people in, as Joel's just describing, to be able to walk up to a statue um, representing an action that not just you know and you recognize, but you love. um, And you have tenderness and excitement about. I mean, putting up fish to dry, that means food for my family. That means that I went out and spent hours and hours of my days on the land, in the water, gathering chika, asking them to come into my nets so that my family can eat for the winter. You know, it's not just a matter of, um, oh yeah, I, I can identify what that is, that woman's putting fish on the fish rack. It's a story. It's a story. And to be able to walk up to one of these statues and recognize not just, you know, maybe aspects of myself, but aspects of my whole family, my whole lineage, my whole genealogy represented in this action that is still prevailing, that still symbolizes our deep relationship with our xika, with our salmon, is powerful. Um, And it's enduring. And it's an act of, um, it's an act of love. It's an act of honoring and respect. The Captain Cook statue is a statue of exclusion. It's a statue that is placed um, here in Anchorage upon a bluff looking out into the water. Um, It is elevated, maybe five feet. You can't interact with it. Uh, The eyes are cold and dark and domineering and it is a statue of domination. It is a statue of empire. it's a statue that, that looks violent and imposing. There is nothing about that statue that includes the observer. There's nothing about that statue that includes um, anyone but this individual, as on these lands here in Dageyakak, Cook was, he, he anchored his ship for two weeks and never came ashore. Um, after leaving a legacy of violence and destruction up and down the coast, to arrive at this point. So when I think about you know, what stories are our statues telling, it's not just that Captain Cook um, for his very, very short time here does not deserve the disproportionate focus and centering in our educational system and the story that's told of Alaska, because there's that. He doesn't. Um, or he doesn't deserve um, the emphasis that he has received thus far. But specifically, this statue feels like an insult as a Denina woman. It feels like a wound because it feels like it's telling the story of the years of colonial oppression that our people endured. It feels like it tells that story of belittling and of demeaning and of violence that our people suffered for hundreds of years that have somehow, in the narrative that is told about these lands, become more emphasized than the thousands of years of thriving and beauty that came before colonial contact and that have persevered through colonial contact to today. And so when I think about the story that we want to tell people, especially that we want to tell um, you know, new Alaskans or visitors to these lands or tourists, um, why why would we um concede that the story the captain cook statue tells is a holistic communication of what this place means to us as all alaskans why would we not tell a more uh, beautiful inclusive story where all alaskans ancient old and new Uh, can can see entrance into the story, can see relationship, can see interaction and dialogue and conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to me, it's not about, you know, tearing down the statue to erase Captain Cook. It's tearing down the statue to replace it with something more generative and beautiful that places Captain Cook within a much, much, much larger context. Um, And that holds him accountable to his actions and to his violence and to what he meant for Western science and Western discovery, sure, I guess. But to expand the conversation, to honor the wealth and the breadth of knowledge of place that existed long before Captain Cook, to acknowledge the presence and and the creation and the community that has been built long after Captain Cook, um, and to create a story that um, we can look at and see ourselves in.
0: Thank you, Ruth. In contrast, Joel, you recently installed a new bronze statue of an elder named Olga, a Danaina matriarch from the village of Akutna. So she stands and overlooks land that was once a prosperous native fish camp. Could you tell us um, about and show us images of this statue and the importance of of honoring indigenous women, the significance of her clothing, some of the other um, lasting symbolism of dignity that
1: um yeah um so this is where olga is now in at the mouth of ship creek and uh she's also putting up fish um and it's the there's a fish trap that's here on the left and it shows another type of fishing technology and the significance of this place specifically is that in springtime, there are small little fish that come up even before the king salmon. And so if you think about, if you had to um, never go to the store in winter in Alaska, how would you put up food? And when might you run out of food if something went wrong? And it's that spring, that April, you're starting, like, all the animals are just, the whole everything is feeling the effects of winter. Everything's lean. There's not plants yet. Um, things are hibernating. It's just harder to find food, It's just the reality of living in in the North. And so in this, in, in this place, there are little fish that come up and the the fish traps are one of the ways that you can, you can uh, collect them um, when they come, come into the trap. And it provides that early, um, Place to go in case you're in a starvation mode, and then the the king salmon shortly follow, and then you get the the next set of species of fish that, that come up um, into Ship Creek, and so this is a very significant place to Denia and Anchorage, and um, the the fish the fishing spot is just a little bit to where Olga's looking at, and now there's the port of Anchorage on top of it, um, and this is part of again that uh monetary mitigation for the destruction of a natural like environmental place and so it's it's an interesting um i i there's interesting things that i feel when i go through projects like this so there's the well yeah i prefer not to destroy sacred fishing grounds that'd be ideal Um, what is the case that we are in right now and what might we be able to do with this to move forward in a way that's more healing because you there's there's no way to at this stage with the parties involved to mitigate in a way that would bring back that place the port of anchorage isn't moving right now um so there's there's all those kinds of conversations that happen within the committees that go through and putting together something like this um so that's, that's part of the, the significance of this place. And then um, Olga, having a Dena'ina female elder was the decision of Eklutna, um, which I think was a, a very good choice to do. Um, Dena'ina is a matrilineal society. And so it makes sense to honor our elders in this way this isn't necessarily um, bronze statuary is not the way that we have historically as Dena'ina people honored our our ancestors, but I think it's a way of bringing forward that visible quality that's lacking, especially in Anchorage, um, that we are still here and this is a place that's, we don't possess it, it's a place that we are intrinsically connected to and we haven't been removed from it we've been it's been tried to remove it, us from it but where else do we go this is home there's no place we return to when you try and remove people who are from a place and so it's still that that lasting nature and her clothes are um our traditional Dena'ina clothes but she's also wearing a cloth scarf so it's that's part of the pieces that they wanted like that's that's like she always had that they wanted to that was a piece of that like it's okay to to use contemporary things alongside traditional ways of being. Um, That's part of that constant development of a society that we as indigenous people are allowed to do too. And so that's part of the pieces of this for her clothing is she's not in 100% pre-contact clothing. She's in clothing that she could have worn. And this is, who we are as people. We're, we're allowed to have that sovereignty over ourselves to make decisions. And, um, yeah, you can see the, the Captain Cook statue and like the Captain Cook Hotel is right there and the statue is just to the right. Um, and it's, i this is a very fitting place for something like this, I feel. It, she, she's, you can walk up to her um, and it's on the water. Um, it's not meant to be stamped on the land in that dominating way that captain cook is presiding over um to cotton or cook inlet so sounded,
0: well and tell us how how she came to be there how did this sculpture come to take this important place
1: um so it was the klutna put the the lodge of klutna posted a request for proposals for this um project on the spot and it was seven years in the making they got the the, the funding, they got the permitting, um, the, uh, all of those pieces in place and it kept getting delayed because of the construction at the port. And so it, finally um, they were able to post the, the RFP and then we had more, more delays um, through the process of just the construction that is happening in this area all the time. And so it was about an eight year process of when Eklutna got the green light, like go ahead and, and we're asking you to put some, you, you have this area, here's the associated funding, determine what you wanna do with it. It, it took about eight years from that point to actually erecting something. Um, so it's, th- these projects are not quick in the making. Um, they tend to take a lot of time it, so you're working with the Navy, the Women's Navy Auxiliary Group, the Port of Anchorage, the Municipality of Anchorage, the Native Village of Aklutna. There are concrete contractors. And then I have the Foundry and me. And so there, there's at least seven or six other people and entities that I'm engaging with to do something like this. And that's part of it, it takes. It's a process. Um, and working with a lot of different groups
0: and did that mean that the design um experienced a lot of modification or collaboration or compromise in the process of
1: i i for me i don't feel like there was compromise um that that was given to the the art side of it what it was a collaborative process so i i put together a um sketches and that's the the proposal that i put together was it was two-dimensional drawings and then. Um, I met several times with their. They had an art committee, or the, the committee for this this project, the Glutna, and I brought up um, the full scale skeleton of Olga so they could look at at her to, burn in steel, and then the fish rack so they could see that. We had a we had a conversation before that to talk about the shape of the fish rack and the the shape of the fish trap because that's one of those like subtle pieces of like each village might make fish traps slightly differently. And you make them for different different species, you make different ways. And so this one's round on the top because here they do round ones. If you go across the inlet, you can see one from like lime village that's square in the opening. And so it's like those kinds of things they we had the conversation so that they were in the driver's seat for making those kinds of decisions. We we talked about, I initially didn't have her with a bandana on. I was just going to do her hair up. And, um, they were like, we want, we had the conversations about the bandana and, and so they got to be very much part of that process of making those decisions. Um, and then me understanding what they were trying to convey so I could render it in bronze in a lifelike quality.
0: Thank you. Turning back to Ruth, um, I, w- I would love, um, your comments and thoughts on what a legitimate process might look like for, um, erecting a monument to, um, indigenous people and culture. And, um, when it's merited, when is it merited, you know, as compared, like you say, to a grove, which is, um, integral and, um, dignifying inherently to the land naturally. Ruth, when would you say that, um, you know this—that—that that a process um, for indigenizing a monument um, is legitimate, and what does that look like?
2: Well, I would say, I mean, just immediately the first—the—the the time for healing is always now, whenever that now is. It's always now uh, when we've when we have been able to, to grow the space and the dialogue to identify that people are uh, in pain or that their hurt is um, being reenacted and reinscribed, then that pain demands healing and it demands our immediate attention. The time to address these and, and all monuments of violence is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, so to come back to, to your first part of that question and um, to echo what Joel said, I mean, the process that he went through, um, through collaboration, through consultation, um, is a perfect model for what this process should look like. Um, because as we are reinventing um, our, our symbols of community, that process has to be done in community. Uh, with one another in dialogue with one another Um, you know throughout this uh process of engaging the captain cook statue in critique uh and in conversation um the akutna tribe and the leadership of the akutna tribe have been at the table with us every step of the way um, because we honor our relatives we respect our relatives um and they as the um last remaining officially formally recognized tribe in the Anchorage area um, have stewardship of these lands. Um, And they in turn also have responsibility to other Dena'ina who are living on these lands um, today and other native peoples who have also been impacted by the legacy of Captain Cook. um, And those like Captain Cook who caused similar violence uh, across Alaska. and so this conversation has to, to grow from that type of um, relationship healing that these, that these statues presently undermine. So if we're talking about how to uh, re-envision what this Captain Cook statue can be, um, first and foremost, it has to come from us sitting down together and thinking about what type of Alaska do we want to represent? Is this really the story that we want to tell of this place that we all know and love? Um, That this place that, you know, some of us have ancestry that goes back as far as time itself, and others have chosen to make this place their home above all other places, each beautiful. Um, And each should be representations of of honoring and respect of this land. And so what does it mean to come together, to collaborate on what something like that could mean? What does that process of transformation look like and that process of healing look like? Um, You know, it's a beautiful moment of potential because, you know, to be frank, um, people, the people, whose cultures have grown from this place for thousands of years, the people whose DNA is intrinsically fabricated from the same DNA that you see looking out your window, these people who have grown language to describe this specific seagull in this place and not that place are offering, teaching, we're offering that... Uh, relationship with land. We're offering an introduction uh, through our knowledge and through our lens and through our hearts and through our spirits into uh, what this place could be, uh, what this place could look like again. Um, And instead of uplifting a legacy of harm and of violence from a man who was here for a remarkably short amount of time and yet caused a a waterfall of um, destruction and and more than anything um, really seeded a very violent narrative about uh, the indigenous people of Alaska um, and the importance that um, settlers and explorers would continue to have in our dominant education. I mean, now we have a chance to um, put these stories in conversation with one another and decide what story we wanna write together moving forward. Uh, what story are we going to tell of this place? What do we want people to see and feel when they go to that beautiful point, when they see Mount Susitna, when they see Takatnu, our inlet? Um, and so when I think of you know the next steps towards a collaboratory process, I mean it's about that education. You know, we are we are happy uh, to share. We are happy to be hosts of these lands to you, if you can be respectful guests, um, and if we can be in community together. So honestly, when I think of taking down the Captain Cook statue, I would love to see that bronze melted down and turned into, I don't know, planters boxes with indigenous plants, you know, benches in a circle where we can sit together and look at one another and talk. There's no place to gather around that statue. There's no place to sit around that statue. People are unwelcome wherever that statue is. It is it is such a place of discomfort um, and of pain and uneasiness, um, but it could be so much more. Um, and what that comes from is an honoring of the knowledges of this place, collaboration with the indigenous peoples of this place, with the, the tribe, and with all tribal members of the area uh, that have come to know and love this place over, you know, through the process of, of our ancestry. Um, and then to call in our new community that have, that have come to these lands with love and with respect um, and think about, you know, what, what, what would that place be like? Where, where can I bring my kids? What will they see? What will they learn uh, when they visit that statue? What story will we tell?
0: Thank you powerful words from Ruth Miller, a woman born and raised in Kak Anchorage, as it's called today. And she has been a fantastic guest today on Inspiration and in Isolation um, with Joel Isaac, Dena'ina artist, um, who has spoken to some gorgeous projects, some installations that he's made honoring indigenous lifeways at uh, Ship Creek and also in um, Old Town Kenai. Thank you both for joining us so much today. And I invite you all to return next week when um, Atna and Paiute artist and activist Melissa Shaganoff um, joins us to talk about Land Acknowledgement in Action, an ephemeral um, landmarking project in um, the Southern Kenai Peninsula. Thanks. Take care. We'll see. See you soon. Thank you.